We turn to this evening's scripture lesson, which is in Leviticus chapter 23. We come this evening to read about the Feast of Weeks, as we've been considering the, the feasts of the Old Testament that God commanded when he gave them to Moses. And so we come now to read Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 22. This is the word of God as he gave to Moses to record here infallibly his law concerning the Old Testament celebrations. And so again, Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 22, the word of the living God. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves, two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout, all, throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord, your God. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its preaching and its hearing. The last time we had an evening service, a couple weeks ago, we considered the Feast of First Fruits and its relationship to Christ, who is the first fruits of those who, to be resurrected to everlasting and glorified life. And we noted that that Feast of First Fruits uh, was to take place the day after the Sabbath of the week of Passover, the first day of the week. And indeed, that's the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, even as uh, this uh, feast of first fruits was to be taking place, and so we noted the connection that Paul says that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the, the first of those to be resurrected to everlasting and glorified life. And so uh, he did indeed rise from the dead on that day of the feast of first fruits. That was when the first fruits of the barley harvest were brought into the temple. And we talked about how uh, there was a, 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 a way in which this was customary or customarily done in Jesus' day. There was a valley outside of, uh, of Jerusalem where and a priest would go and cut some of the barley, a sheaf of barley, and bring it in, and it would be waved 
before the Lord over the altar as a wave offering, as it's called. But there was a second feast of first fruits, also known as the Feast of Weeks, about which we just read, when the first fruits of the rest of the grain harvest, especially the wheat harvest, were customarily brought into the temple. In this case, because it's later in the year, uh, sometime between late May and late June on our calendars, the offering involves not just one grain offering for all of Israel as the first fruits, as with the earlier feast of first fruits, but two loaves of bread from every family, from every household. It's called the Feast of Weeks uh, because it took place seven weeks, that is a week of weeks, a seven of sevens, uh, from that earlier Feast of First Fruits. So you would start on that uh, Feast of First Fruits, as uh, verse 15 tells us, the day after that Sabbath, when that first Feast of First Fruits took place, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from that day you shall that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. In verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So a week of weeks from the day of the Feast of First Fruits, or 50 days from the day or from the Sabbath day of the week of Passover. And so uh, from that 50 days we get the, the term Pentecost in Greek, which means the 50th. And so Feast of Weeks or Pentecost means the same thing, uh, culturally speaking there. They're talking about the same day. It was generally understood that the Lord had given the law on Mount Sinai 50 days from the Sabbath after Passover. And so this feast was seen as a commemoration of that in many ways, of the giving of the law as well. And so uh, many ancient Jews would commemorate the giving of the law at the same time of the Feast of Weeks. It was on one such Pentecost, one Feast of Weeks, the one following Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven, that the Holy Spirit poured out upon Christ's disciples. And we read about this in Acts chapter 2. And so... Recall that Jesus ministered on earth, appeared to his disciples for about 40 days from his resurrection. And so this would be about 10 days later. They only had to wait about a week and a half uh, when he told them to stay in Jerusalem and uh, until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And that uh, was about a week and a half later. And so uh, just as the Holy Spirit-inspired law of Moses came quite likely on this day, so did the Holy Spirit pour out on the New Covenant Church on that same day. Now notice that verse 17 instructs that the loaves offered shall be of fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits to the Lord. Well, that's different. This, in fact, is the only leaven offered in Old Testament temple worship. Many commentators have noted that this probably signified, was a foreshadowing of the joining of Gentiles to God's people. Of course, there were many cases, uh, individual cases of Gentiles who came to worship the Lord. 
in the Old Testament, and they would be joined to Israel. They would become Israelites. But it's only after this outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, after Christ's ascension into heaven, that that ministry explodes. And in fact, to this day, it wasn't very long after the time of Christ, that uh, the majority of followers of Christ on earth were Gentiles and not Jews, and that has continued to be the case to this day. And there, I believe, is predicted in Romans 11, a, uh, a time when a large number of Jews will also return to Christ. And that is yet to happen. But this is the only leaven offered in temple worship, and that may well be a foreshadowing of that. And of course, the mission of the church to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth received its empowerment by the Holy Spirit on this very feast day. And that's not a coincidence. There are no such things as coincidences for God except in the very basic term of the coincidence, that's the word coincidence, which just means things that happen at the same time. But there, it's not an accident. This is purposeful. On God's part. On behalf of all Israel, seven unblemished lambs, a year old, one bull, two rams uh, would be brought, as we read in verse 18. You shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord. So the whole thing is going to be burnt with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. A whole offering to the Lord, recognizing that the whole self belongs to God. So these animals were a whole burnt offering. Then a male goat was sacrificed as a sin offering, and two lambs as a peace offering to symbolize reconciliation between the Lord and His people. So the sin has to be paid for, and uh, this was a recognition that our sins have to be paid for, and then also uh, that peace needs to be made between God and his people. That's what we read about in verse 19. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. These were eaten by the priests along with the loaves that were offered by the people. So the priests, as it were, sat down to another meal with the Lord. This is what we see in verse 20. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. So this is a, a meal that is shared between the priests and God. Now, think about what that foreshadows in the New Covenant era. Who are the Lord's priests today? If you're thinking, well, the ministers, the guy behind the pulpit, right? That's the, the priest. Well, you're only partly right, but only because all of us who are in Christ are Christ's priesthood. This is why we avoid using that term, priest, though our English word priest actually confusingly comes from the Greek word presbyter, which our elders are presbyters, and we're not all presbyters in that sense. That means elder in, in Greek. Uh, but it's used to translate 
the word that means the one who makes sacrifices, the one who serves intercessory, uh, an intercessory role between the people and God. And we all are God's priests now, we're told. 1 Peter 2.9 makes it clear, every believer is a priesthood unto the Lord. As God's priests, therefore, we are privileged to be able to approach him and even to sit down to this to a sacramental meal with him. We just did that this morning. <coughs> the burnt offerings to the Lord having been completed in Christ and all of the sacrifice for sin, and he's been the one who's made peace for us, Jesus having atoned for our sins and made reconciliation between God and believers, between us and our holy creator, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, for example, tell us that explicitly. We now get to come as God's priests and sit down to a meal with him. And of course, as we also noted when we were preparing for the Lord's Supper this morning, that that is a foreshadowing of a time where we will literally sit down to a meal with Jesus physically present with us, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Old Covenant Israel... This feast of the second feast of first fruits, this feast of weeks, Pentecost, was a special Sabbath day. So it would have been on the first day of the week. By the way, that's also one of the foreshadowings that Denny Pruto does a really good examination of this in his book, Public Worship 101, where he uh, speaks of eighth day worship, eighth day Sabbaths in the Old Testament, and there were a few of them. And this is one of them. A special Sabbath day foreshadowing Christ's resurrection and the fact that the Sabbath day from his resurrection to the end of the world would be the first day of the week and not the last any longer. But this was to be, as we read, a special Sabbath day, a day of rest from all of the labors of God's people, a day of holy convocation. So that's a a day of public worship. They're going to gather together for public worship. This was one of the feasts that required all of the adult males of Israel to be at the sanctuary, and so uh, this convocation would mostly have taken place at Jerusalem in Jesus' day, though uh, people who didn't come would have been having worship near home. So if if the adult males happen to leave some of their family behind, for example, but usually it was the custom that whole families would go to Jerusalem for the three great feasts, and this being one of them, the other two being Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. So we see this in verse 21, and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. Convocation just means being called together. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Now we should also note that last statement there that this is to be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. That word forever is rather bothersome to some people, confuses some. There are some even today who believe that we are required because of certain statements like that, forever, that that now we should still be celebrating these Old Testament feasts. Christians should be doing this. Well, we ask that question. Does that mean that we still need to be observing the Feast of Weeks and other Old Testament feasts that speak of how this is a statute forever throughout your generations? Well, 
After all, if our covenant theology is correct, we know that the church is Israel. So why would this commandment not apply to us? We don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. We don't believe that the church and Israel are two separate things, but rather that the church is a continuation of spiritual Israel. So shouldn't this apply to us? Well, let's apply some good scriptural study to the matter. The term translated there forever is the Hebrew word olam. This word, depending on context and prepositions and things like that, uh, can mean things like forever, it can mean perpetual, it can even mean eternal or unto eternity. Ad olam is the expression that means usually means eternal. But it appears here with no preposition, so we're better off understanding it for its most basic meaning, uh, which is for the age, or to the end of the age. Well, what age are we talking about then? The commandment is best understood as a command to observe the feast to the end of the age. So what age is being talked about here, and has the end of that age come? Well, the quick answer to that is yes. The end of that age has come. Hebrews 8.13, for example, tells us that the old covenant age has passed away. And we know that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfilled all sacrifice, All of the temple worship is fulfilled in him on the cross. And so after his death and his resurrection, there was no need for the Old Testament types and shadows. Uh, But, of course, uh, within the lifetime of people who witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the temple was destroyed in God's providence. And so there is no such worship taking place today, except as a uh, more of a reflection of those kinds of things, but it isn't legitimate to require this. As Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us, to require the keeping of these Old Testament ceremonial uh, celebrations, the Old Testament ceremonial calendar, would be like saying, Jesus hasn't actually fulfilled it all yet. He hasn't actually done enough. The substance has not yet come. So we need to cling to the shadow. And some time back when I preached in Colossians 2, you might recall that I talked about how you can tell certain things about me. If I were standing around the corner of a building and, and the sun was shining behind me, you could see my shadow. And you could discern a few things about me, perhaps, from that shadow. But it would be silly of you if I came around the corner then to keep looking at the shadow to try to figure out things about me when there I am standing right in front of you. We have the substance. We have Christ. And it is, in fact, not only silly for us to look at the shadows to figure him out, it is actually wrong. Because if we cling to the shadows, it would be like saying, Jesus hasn't actually fulfilled them yet. We might add the same wording here of forever and to the end of the age, that sort of thing, uh, applies to the Day of Atonement. Well, you can't observe the biblical Day of Atonement without sacrificing a bull and a goat and sending another goat to his Azel. But has Christ not fulfilled our atonement? We don't need to do that anymore. The substance is here. We have no need of the shadows. 
So we're not required to go through with the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. But rather, we do see that the Feast of Weeks weeks does have a theology behind it that being fulfilled in Christ does touch upon how we worship Christ. The feast, the sacraments, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ's work being accomplished. He has given the New Covenant Church sacraments that look back to his accomplished work. So if we look at it another way, if we want to be celebrating the Feast of Weeks, what will we do? If we want to obey these commandments so far as they apply to us in the New Covenant, what do we do? Well, we're going to come to the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we are keeping this statute as it applies to us in Christ in the New Covenant. Alfred Edersheim summarizes the doctrine of the Feast of Weeks for the church quite beautifully. He says, If Jewish tradition connected the Feast of Firstfruits with the mount that might not be touched, and the voice of words which they had heard and treated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, we have in this respect also come unto Mount Zion and to the better things of the new covenant. So what's he saying there? Well, the Feast of Weeks looked forward to something that we now actually have. To us, the day of Pentecost is indeed the Feast of Firstfruits, and that of the giving of the better law, written not in tables of stone, but on the fleshy tables of the heart, with the spirit of the living God. For as the worshippers were in the temple, probably just as they were waving, uh, just as they were offering the wave lambs and the wave bread, the multitude heard that sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, which drew them to the house where the apostles were gathered, there to hear every man in his own language the wonderful works of God. So what's he saying? Think about the timing of this. It was the very day that these first fruits were being brought in on Pentecost into the temple and this wave offering was being offered, uh, perhaps even at the same time in the morning. It would have been an appropriate time for the, the wave offering to be offered. That, that sound of the mighty rushing wind was heard, which attracted people to the house where the apostles were gathered, and the apostles then spoke in tongues not a heavenly language, as so many mistakenly think, but the languages of the people who were gathered there from all over the known world, and thus showing that this was indeed the word of God that was being spoken. This miracle was happening, proving that these men were speaking the truth. Edersheim goes on and says, And on that Pentecost day, from the harvest of first fruits, not less than 3,000 souls added to the church were presented as a wave offering to the Lord. So, there, just as Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, then on the second Feast of First Fruits, the, the Feast of Pentecost, the first fruits of the ingathering of all of Christ's people from the far ends of the world happened. That first fruits, 3,000 were added to the first congregation of the New Covenant Church. He says here then, the cloven tongues of fire and the apostolic gifts of that day of first fruits have indeed long since disappeared, but the mighty rushing sound of the presence and power of the Holy Ghost has gone forth 
into all the world. So here we note that the Feast of First Fruits was a foreshadowing of Christ calling in to his church people from the far ends of the world. And even the leaven in those loaves was a foreshadowing, quite likely, of the Gentiles being added. For the command was, though on that day the people who were gathered were Jews and proselytes, people who had converted to Judaism from all over the known world. But it was soon after that, as the church went forth from Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, it wasn't long before the Gentile converts were growing and growing and growing in number and came even soon to outnumber the Jewish converts to Christ. And so we see this as a foreshadowing, the first fruits of that happening, of the gospel going forth, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all of the nations, and making Israelites, making children of Abraham out of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so we rejoice, especially as we come to the Lord's table and fulfill uh, this uh, commandment as it applies to us in the New Covenant, we rejoice that Christ is calling his people from the ends of the earth. Well, may we pray. Oh Lord, now we pray that your word would encourage us to live in obedience as we come each time, even as we did this morning, to observe this statute. But we pray that each day we would be keeping Christ's commandments to proclaim his death until he returns, both through this sacred meal when we come together for that, but through all of our words and deeds each day, that we would proclaim Christ and him crucified to the world around us, that we might see more and more people added to your church, even as we remember the first fruits of your people added to the New Covenant Church on this day of Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.